Welcome back, everyone, to part two of two of the DC Kin Care Alliance podcast on kinship diversion, also known as hidden foster care. I'm Marla Spindell, Executive Director of DC Kin Care Alliance, and I'm joined by my colleague Stephanie McClellan, Deputy Director. Today is Wednesday, April 28th, 2021, and we'll jump right in where we left off last time. All right, let's keep listening. You know that we have to go down this path a little bit, though, because we talked about it a lot today in testimony. So let's get it all on the record. The diversion policy that is um, that CFSA provided in pre-hearing questions requires that the decision be made within a short period of time, the diversion to an It's likely the identified caretaker may not fully understand all that's entailed with taking care of the child and may realize they need more and different supports than those that were identified at the time of the diversion. Does CFSA follow up to ensure the caretaker has the support needed to properly care for the child? Okay. Yeah, sure. And and this definitely was a lot of discussion and seems like this is the, the topic of the day, which is great, um, but I, I'm going to agree with the director. So to that answer, there are several, I want to kind of go through the process one. Um, we've talked a lot about today about um, licensed clinical social workers. And I, and I have to preface this because I think people need to understand that we have probably the most professionalized workforce in the country. And it would be very difficult for me to believe that there's an investigator that didn't do his or her due diligence to ensure a child is safe with an individual. I mean, we do this work every single day. They are trained specifically to understand child safety. With that being said, mm-hmm. when we're talking about diversions, a diversion, we utilize our safety and danger, safety and danger, safety assessment. One, to see if there are any danger indicators. Okay. And through that, even though it's probably initially in, the examples of, of a diversion can be similar to what the director talked about. We're contacting MPD, we're about to arrest this parent. Mm-hmm. Well, if this parent is arrested and if there's a relative that comes on the scene and we help to devise if, if it's an assessment and, and this relative is appropriate, of course, why would we take that child into foster care when there's a relative? When of course there's no abuse or neglect, or let's say that a parent has to be hospitalized and then there's a relative that comes. Why would we remove that child to bring that child into foster care? Now, if we're talking about other types of allegations, that's different, but I have to lead on and lean on the expertise and clinical judgment of our social workers to make that decision. And there's a consultation process with that. To To your question though, Okay, so there's a lot there with respect to him saying that he relies on his social workers to ensure the child's safe, but do they ever check about who they're having this child go with? They don't know. I mean, for sure, the people we work with, we, I mean, the majority of relative caregivers are good people, have safe homes, although as we've talked about, you know, they're on the margins of instability as far as financially. But CFSA just, you know, in an instant, if they can find this other person to take the child, they will let that happen without doing any kind of background checks, go to the home, do anything to ensure that there's a safe place for that child to live. It's a real abdication of responsibility. And The other situation that we've seen is 
there are clinical social workers at CFSA working hard to make these decisions, and then they're overruled at the supervisory level, including by Mr. Matthews, who's not a clinical social worker, and their clinical judgment is overruled, and the decisions are made at the supervisory level. We've had a number of situations where we have actually been in the meetings or been on the phone and Mr. Matthews is involved where he's stated that he's making the decision and the decision is a diversion. So the fact that he's relying on his social workers and it's sort of a bottom-up approach is not what we've experienced. It's a top-down approach where diversion is something that the agency promotes and ensures that it is implemented because that's the way that they can reduce the foster care roles, which appears to be one of their most important goals, is to reduce the number of children in foster care, which is a great goal if you're reducing the underlying abuse and neglect. But just to say we're reducing the number of children in foster care doesn't mean children aren't being abused or neglected. Right. Very often the phrase that's used by CFSA is we're reducing the need for foster care when what we've seen is reducing foster care without reducing the need for foster care. And as laudable a goal as reducing foster care numbers overall is, the more important goal is reducing abuse and neglect. The other thing that I noticed is that Mr. Matthews said that they always try to license relative caregivers when they are placing children in foster care. Yet CFSA consistently has numbers below the national average for licensing kinship caregivers as foster care parents. The national average hovers around 32, 33%. Roughly two-thirds of children are placed with foster parents what you traditionally think of as foster parents, people they didn't previously know or have a relationship. And then roughly one-third nationally are placed with relative caregivers, and that includes fictive kin like godparents or, or close friends that the children previously had a relationship with. And there's good reason for that. You want to not disturb that child support system as much as possible while still keeping them but CFSA's numbers show that they don't license as many relative caregivers as foster parents as the rest of the country. Despite the fact that their goal has been to exceed that national average, it has never happened. And it has remained consistent for a while at 28% and then more recently dropped even to 26%. And Going back to the assertion of reducing the need for foster care rather than just simply reducing the numbers in foster care, we know how to ameliorate abuse and neglect of children. It's not a mystery. We know how to do it. It's providing services to families that are at risk, providing money to those families, providing opportunities to those families, providing opportunities for them to engage in services where they don't feel like it's onerous and punitive, and providing services that actually do help with reducing abuse or neglect. But that's not what DC does. If you just look at their Family First Prevention Act implementation, 
they were only able to get approved either one or two services that are evidence-based as a prevention service, and they're only able to pull down $80,000 a year to do that. So what other services are being provided in D.C. may be helpful to prevent abuse or neglect, but there's no evidence to support that, and there's no oversight to determine outcomes and to figure out what services families and communities need and making sure those services are available, that there aren't waiting lists, making sure there's financial support, educational support. All of those things reduce and can ameliorate abuse and neglect. It's not like CFSA doesn't have the money. They do. They underspend their budget consistently. In fact, Marla, you asked through FOIA for information on how CFSA spent funds budgeted specifically to support kinship caregivers and to support families who are in need and whose children are at risk of going into foster care. And what you found is that in fiscal year 2020, CFSA had $100,000 budgeted to its kinship support bridge, which is funds available to kinship caregivers. They spent approximately 20% of that, $21,806.06 out of $100,000 that was budgeted. And unsurprisingly, since they withheld those funds from kinship caregivers in need, that budget was cut in half for fiscal year 2021, and they now have budgeted $50,000 for that. Last year, they had $400,000 in emergency flex funds that they could use to support families receiving in-home services. So children who were at risk of going into foster care but whose families were receiving services in-home. Out of $400,000, again, CFSA massively underspent $89,798.70 in fiscal year 2020 out of $400,000 they could have used to support those families. And again, unsurprisingly, the following year, fiscal year 2021 this year, that budget was reduced to $145,000. And it looks like with respect to the kinship support money, $50,000 that was budgeted for fiscal year 2021, which is the fiscal year we're in now, none of it has been spent to date. And with respect to the in-home flex funds of the 145000 only 7000 has been spent to date. We've been told, don't worry, it'll be reallocated to next year or to another service or another area. And it's sort of like, no, we are worried because the whole point is to support the families today, not next year, not for some other program, for the program that it's budgeted for and to do it in the year that it's budgeted for. And this is all in the context of there being a huge waiting list that's been there for about a year and a half now for the grandparent caregiver subsidy. People that have applied for and been approved for the grandparent caregiver program that are just waiting on the funds. These are grandparent caregivers who have taken children into their phone who qualify because their income, their family income, is less than 200% of the federal poverty level. 
which if you've ever looked at that chart, I don't know how anybody survives on 200% of the federal poverty level, certainly not in an area as expensive as D.C. is. And they need this money now to support these children, but they're waiting while CFSA has extra money in the budget. And if you look at the numbers of unspent funds over the last two and a half years, that could have, if they wanted to, quote, repurpose it or reallocate it, it could have been used to eliminate the waiting list altogether for the grant right. subsidy. Right, and that's not even counting the $2 million that was repurposed last year from CFSA's budget to overtime for the Metropolitan Police Department. CFSA has testified, and we agree based on what we know of the numbers for the waiting list, that the whole list could have been eliminated with $800,000, which is a lot of money to you and me and to these relative caregivers, but it is a drop in the bucket of CFSA's budget. And it's only half the foster care rate when you get the grandparent subsidy. So they're already saving money by only paying people the grandparent subsidy and not the full foster care rate. Which wasn't what the law was originally intended to do. Originally, the law was intended to try to match the foster care rate. It was only when D.C. hit hard fiscal times after the 2008 financial problems that they reduced the amount of the grandparent caregiver subsidy, but then even in the ages of surpluses, the numbers weren't increased when D.C. was flush again. Right. And if you look at the federal poverty line, if you look at 200% of the federal poverty line, which is the cutoff to be eligible for the grandparent subsidy, if you're a family size of two, a household size of two, which would be the grandparent and one grandchild, 200% 200% would be an annual income of $34,480. And if they took two children in and had a three-person household size, it would be $43,440. All right, let's keep listening. You, and you mentioned, do we follow up? Mm-hmm. Prior to authorizing, there is, a, there is a discussion to talk about as you make this decision as a family. There are services that we can offer. We talk about the navigator program, the grandparent caregivers, the, the, uh, the CRC and others, the collaboratives and more. And we make sure they understand that, you know, we're, we're available to provide this. Even as we authorize it and they decide, you know, I'm gonna take this child. If, there's, if they need help, we always let them know. They can always contact the kinship navigator because it is available to any of them. So part of that is, is that it doesn't necessarily require us to be formally involved with this family. Okay. How do we contact the Kinship Navigator Program? I don't know how. Let's look at the kinship policy that was published by CFSA. There is actually a link to what is supposed to be online access to the Kinship Navigator called NowPow. And if you click on that link, you know what you have to have in order to be able to log into it? Government access. So CFSA employees can access this information, but nobody else can. I can't. You can't. Members of the public can't. And do we have any idea what the Kinship Navigator Program does or what services it provides? Well, Marla, interesting that you should ask because if you Google DC Kinship Navigator, what comes up is our website. 
further on down the line, you get CFSA's website, but not a website specific to any kinship navigator. And the whole point of a kinship navigator is supposed to be a public-facing program that people can access so then they can get information about kinship care, their legal rights, the benefits that they might be eligible for, but there's nothing. And CFSA has received over $400,000 from the federal government to establish a kinship navigator program, correct? They have, and you have done a FOIA request to try to find out how those funds have been spent. So listeners, when we get that information, we will be sure to share it with you. Okay, well, let's keep listening. I'll say this last, and I, I kept trying to decide if I was going to say it. You know, we've heard from families too. And what families have also told us is that they don't want to be surveilled all the time. Yeah. They don't need government intervention. Now, guarantee, guess what? We still remove kids today, and those are the kids that are unsafe in environments. But there's a way that government can be supportive and not have that huge footprint in their lives when there are some families that don't need it. But there are some families that do need us, and there are some times and instances to where we have to make that decision. And we do. But I'm just saying that sometimes I think we're, we're, we are over-surveilling families when there's no need to. And so that's yeah. So I think, you know, again, we're in agreement. Don't over-surveil families if they don't need to. But they've already decided they need to in these situations. They've decided the child can't even stay in their own home. Well, it's, again, conflating groups of people that CFSA is not required to give certain benefits and supports to with groups that don't need it or it's not legally required in order to justify denying it to people who are eligible for it and for whom it is required. All right, let's keep listening. Okay, well, I hear what Can you're saying. Can I say one more thing? I'm sorry, one more thing. Uh, yes. That one diversion... Um, part of the policy, too, because I think that's being missed in terms of data tracking, is that we do look after six months to see if there's an additional hotline call or if that child's removed. That particular child, there was no re-report or that child wasn't removed. We do that um, regularly based on that policy. So we will know if we've authorized a diversion and if there's a subsequent call that will come on that child. And if there's a call that comes on that child where a diversion has been authorized, that worker will know, which then will give the worker to say, hey, wait a minute, we've diverted once. So now we may need to look to do something different. So I think part of it is trying to understand the process because I'm not sure everyone understood that piece of the policy. So the policy isn't that clear about what follow-up they do, but this seems to indicate that there's no follow-up unless there's another allegation of abuse or neglect, and then they have to go out on their normal you know, decide whether they investigate that or not, which is consistent with what we understand, which is that once they've found a relative that the child's, quote, safe with, they've closed their case, and they're not going to reopen unless there's a new allegation of abuse or neglect that they find rises to the level of investigation. Right. Following up just means has there been another hotline call within six months, not actually going out to the family and saying, hey, We've abandoned you all for the last six months. How are you doing? Do you need anything? If you're not accurately tracking who has been diverted, then how do you know who to follow up with? Remember, they're saying there's right. only been one diversion, and we know of many more. The idea that 
people who disagree with you, it's because they don't understand the policies is also <laughs> offensive. It's not that we don't understand what the position is, it's that we disagree with it. Correct. And he mentioned that if the, there was a re-report on this child that had been diverted, then they might think about doing something differently. In our experience, they'll just do the same thing, which is find somebody else to divert the child to. Not only have we seen multiple diversions of a child over and over again, sometimes to the same relatives, sometimes to different relatives, we've actually seen situations where there has been prior foster care. The child has been reunified with the parent unsuccessfully, and the parent has fallen back into you know, drug use such that the parent can no longer care for the child. And then the child is subsequently diverted after previously having unsuccessful reunification in foster care. Correct. Let's keep listening. Um, okay. So I, I think I understand this, but can, so once somebody has chosen to take on a relative through a diversion, you, you basically do a conference with them. Here are all your options. Can they choose later then to come and be a part of the system formally um, and receive benefits that way? So I think that's, and I think, uh, Councilwoman, I think that's the confusion. Okay. So for instance, our workers are trained to provide all the options, right? Even yeah. to foster care. I think the rub and where the misunderstanding is that option is only available when CPS has determined that child is no longer safe and we officially remove. Okay, so I don't think there's any confusion. Nope, none at all. <laughs> at least not, I think there's confusion because it is confusing that just because a relative comes on the scene, suddenly foster care's off the table. So I think that's confusing to other people, but I think they've made it pretty clear that that's what they do. Let's keep listening. If they, are, if, they, if they have that child in their care, physical care, mm -hmm. and want to come back and say, I want to be a kinship foster parent, the question I'm going to ask is, well, that means I have to remove the child from you. Right. You understand? Because we have not made an official removal or that child has not been assessed to be in danger. So I think that's some of the confusion with, oh, they want to come back and be a kinship foster care. If they want to be a kinship foster parent, then we would have had to assess this, child, this child's danger is, is compromised to where they have to be removed. So I think that's really where the rub is. And Stephanie, you can talk about this because you've had a relative be threatened that if they want to have the child be in foster care, they can't take care of the child after they've taken the child in through a diversion, that they can't do that because the agency is going to file a neglect case against them. Yep. That's their thanks for taking in a child when CFSA asks them to, is to later be threatened with a neglect case themselves when they are having difficulty taking care of that child without supports and services. And yes, we have had a client be threatened and told that if she didn't find another relative to care for the children, these three children, all of whom had severe mental health and behavioral issues, that she was having difficulty handling because she was left completely without any support or services for those children, 
that she would then be charged with neglect. And this was someone who had a job that that would severely impact her ability to earn a living. All right, let's keep listening. So let me just, I guess, um, split hairs a little bit finer. So the child is not officially being removed from their biological family because they are diverted to another relative. So we never open a case, but if say, for example, the child had gone into foster care, had come into the system at that moment instead of being diverted, and then a family member came out around and said, we can take the kid, then they would be eligible Absolutely. to be a foster parent or a resource parent. Yes, if, they, if we've assessed through that child's removed and they meet all the licensing regulations, absolutely. I really yes. appreciate Council Member Nano asking the right question. Yes, I agree. And that question gets to the heart and the meat of the issue, which is if they can't find a relative to take this child when they've decided the child can no longer live in the home, they're going to be forced to remove that child to foster care. And if a relative comes on the scene after the child's been removed and says, I'll take the kid, then that relative could be licensed as a foster parent because the child was already removed. But in that exact same scenario, the relative comes before they've removed and the relative takes physical custody of that child upon CFSA's arrangement and request and asks to be a foster parent, that option is off the table. The danger to the child is the same in both situations. CFSA has made the decision that the child cannot remain in the parental home in both situations. And that's where the discrimination comes in. There's a variety of ways in which children who are diverted experience discrimination as compared with children who are placed in foster care. One way that they're discriminated against is through a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The children who are diverted have experienced the same or similar type of maltreatment as children who are placed in foster care. Remember that CFSA has already decided that both sets of children can't stay in the parental home due to maltreatment, either abuse or neglect. And the fact that the children are treated differently isn't rationally related to advancing any legitimate governmental interest, and so it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which is like a long way of saying that children who are in foster care are entitled to certain things under the law. They're entitled to receive appropriate services. They're entitled to receive a case plan and have their status reviewed periodically. They're entitled to monetary support. Children who experience diversion get none of those things, and that's discrimination. And let's not forget about how we've experienced CFSA treating families when they are trying to work out these plans in air quotes, for the child to live with a relative. It's not a warm and fuzzy process where they're ensuring that they don't police the family. They actually are policing the family and coercing families to agree to an illegal placement. 
And they do that right. by threatening the parents that if they don't agree to this, if they even have the parents to agree, sometimes they'll make these arrangements without the parent there and without their consent, which definitely interferes with their constitutional right to parent a child. And all you legal eagles out there, nobody's filed a case on behalf of the parents that we know of, so there's room for somebody with some creativity to get involved. Which, again, everyone's all in uproar about children separated from their parents at the border with no due process. What about our own citizens here in D.C.? In any event, the parents are also told that if they don't agree, their child will go into, quote, the system, implying it would be with a stranger and that it would be very hard to ever get their child back. They're never told that they can get services. They're never told that the goal would be to reunify the child with them in a safe way, none of that. And the relatives are coerced because they're told the same thing, that if they don't agree to take this child informally, the child will go into the, quote, system, which all of our clients interpret to mean with a stranger. They're never told that they can be quickly licensed as a kinship foster parent, they actually are told that it may be difficult for them to be licensed and they might not meet all the requirements and it could take a long time, which are all false because there is a quick expedited licensing process for relatives and fictive kin and all of the non-safety related licensing requirements can be waived for kin and fictive kin. Finally, yep. they also practice law by telling the relatives to file for custody in the custody court and tell them that it's the exact same thing as a foster care case, which again is not true. In a custody case, the relative has to file a case against their child or sibling or whoever it is they're related to that's the parent of the child. In a foster care case, CFSA brings the case and holds the burden to prove that this child should be separated from their parent. In addition, again, there are all these services and subsidies that come with a neglect case that don't come with a custody case. This is all to get to their end goal. It's very Machiavellian. The goal is the child goes with the relative informally, and they say or do whatever they need to to make sure that happens. And so one of the other things that relatives are told is that if you just want the money, then you should just give the child back so they're made to feel guilty. And they're also told that if for some reason the parent can't be reunified with the child in a foster care case, that then the parent's rights would have to be terminated and they would have to adopt the child, which again is false because in D.C. there's a guardianship statute and they can obtain permanent guardianship of the child, get a guardianship subsidy, and the parents' rights are not terminated. There's no respect at all for these families. They're told things that are untrue. They're manipulated and coerced into agreeing to something that there's no way they would understand. Anybody would understand what their rights are. There's no lawyers in the room or advocates in the room that could educate parents and relatives. And in the case of children, there should be advocates for children in that meeting. All right, let's continue listening. That's the sequencing. The determination yeah. has to be that the child is in at imminent risk of harm and has to be removed for that child's safety. 
And then that wouldn't be the case with a diversion though. Isn't that child being removed for a safety? Okay. So what, no, because then the child is safe senses. with the relative. The child has, is no longer in harm's way. Right. But it feels kind of like potato, yeah. potato to me. Still. That is exactly how it feels to us. Potato, potato. The whole concept that when the child is diverted to live with a relative, then all other issues have been resolved because the child's safe with the relative and we don't need to assess the safety in the parental home because let's not forget, when they divert that child to live with the relative, they're walking away with no legal rights. They have the child in their physical care, but they don't have any legal rights to care for that child. That child can be returned home tomorrow. And CFSA right. would the know parents that. can even call the police that night and say, the relative caregiver kidnapped my child. And the relative caregiver has no rights to keep that child. The parent could come get the child that night. So how does Director Donald, how is she able to say that the child's safe with the relative when they have no way of knowing whether they're safe or return tomorrow or what that home looks like or the stability of the situation? And the idea that, oh, the child's safe with the relative, so we don't need to follow up on what happened in the home that made it so that the child couldn't stay there. It makes no sense, number one, and as we've said before, that's illegal. That's the whole reason why there are these processes in place to try to address what happened in the parental home and not separate children from their families unless there's due process and other supports and services and procedures in place. Let's keep on. Let's, we've got a few more minutes left. And I also, and I think this is this again, uh, Councilwoman. I think this is where where it really gets down to. Um, I'm going to say need to agree because I'm from the south. Our social workers have to determine that child is unsafe. So, for instance, we can't. And I the can't, court has to has to validate. Well. So, if you're diverting a child to a relative, why are you doing that? Say that again, uh, the question. When you do a diversion, mm -hmm. what's the cause? So the cause for diversion is that we have ruled out, I'm going to say ruled out, that this child can remain safely in the community. We don't have to remove this child because the safety threats are not present. The safety threats are not significant enough to where the child has to be removed. So then why is the child going to a, a relative? The child may go, may go to a relative for different reasons. So for instance, I gave examples. If they're arrested, they have no choice. But either so the go parent wasn't neglectful, the parent's circumstance changed. It depends on the circumstance. And I, and that's, I guess that's why I want to say there's not one particular scenario that fits across the board. Every case will be different and those circumstances will be different that that social worker has to make a determination through consultation with the supervisor and the PM before it's even approved. I mean, so like nailing jello to a wall. <laughs> that was a lot of words that we're trying to work around. Again, a very good question by Chairperson Nadeau. Why is that child going with a relative if the safety issues aren't such that the child needs to be removed? Well, he couldn't answer that because it is such that the child would need to be removed. 
But they've decided that, quote, the safety issues aren't such that the child needs to be removed because now the child's living with the relative as they arranged for. It's all circular. A lot of tap dancing in that answer. Oh, yeah. Let's listen again. Part of, part of the way I look at it is, since we've finalized the policy itself, being that we've only had one, speaks to me that they're taking the time to really critically think about the sure. importance of whether to divert or either to bring the child into foster care. Yeah, I mean, look, that could be the case. It could be the case that COVID has changed something else. I mean, we don't, I think we have to kind of study it longer, but yeah. Again, he's talking about how well they're tracking and being careful to ensure that they're doing it right when we know that number one, they're not doing it right, and number two, they're not tracking it correctly. Sort of hard to do it worse. Okay, this is the last piece we're gonna listen to today. Um, okay, so can you just put on the record then CFSA's policy on safety planning regarding diversion? Is it correct that CFSA will always make sure kin knew they have the option to be a formal kin caregiver with foster care benefits? I will go on record and, and I'll say this, I give kudos to my um, partners at the CLC. Um, and, and, and I think that's the way partnership works. Uh, one of the things they asked us to do is to actually put that in our policy. I've committed to doing that. Mm -hmm. We're gonna put it in our policy to make sure that we explain all of the options available. Uh, we, we should have that ready within a week or two. And yes, I will go on record to say we'll do that. Okay. All right, so let's see what it is that they changed in their policy. Stephanie, you wanna tell us? Well, if you look at the policy, there's actually a link to something called a kinship care guide, which is what CFSA claims that they give to relative caregivers to show them all their different options when they take in a child. First, I will say that we represent an awful lot of kinship caregivers, and not one of them has ever even heard of the kinship care guide, much less ever seen it. Second, the guide itself says that foster care is only an option when CFSA chooses to formally remove, which they're not doing in diversion. So yes, they're explaining that foster care is an option, just not one that's available to them. And that's if this explanation and kinship care guide are ever actually given and that conversation ever actually happens, which we've never seen. So they added to their policy a note that says, the investigative social worker shall discuss the option to explore legal custody, which is not foster care, and various kinship opportunities available with the child's parent, non-custodial parent, and or identified caregiver. And then see the kinship care guide that Stephanie just talked about. What we think is really important, and I don't think everybody understands this, and it's not because people aren't really smart that we work with, but it's because it's really hard to follow. But I think if you, the way we parsed it out, if you followed this podcast, is foster care is not on the table when a relative steps up. So this concept that they would be told of all of their options, including foster care, is not really true because foster care is not an option in a diversion situation. I think Brenda Donald and Robert Matthews were very clear about that. 
And the note that they added that supposedly was saying that they would be provided with all of their options is very nuanced for a reason, because they wanted to make it out like they might be providing everyone their options, including foster care, but they really aren't, and they made that pretty clear. But because they committed to doing that, that's what they did. Foster care is not an option when there's a diversion, and I think everyone needs to understand that the FSA saying that they're going to provide all the options means all the options other than foster care. Thank you so much for listening. I know that was a lot to digest. If you have any thoughts, comments, or want to discuss this issue, feel free to contact Stephanie or myself, and we'll be happy to discuss it with you. And if you are or know of a relative caregiver that needs any supports or services for taking care of a child in D.C., please feel free to have them call our helpline at 202-505-5803. See you next time.